Our psalm reading this morning comes from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again, and welcome to In Town. It's great to be with you. If you're visiting with us uh, this morning, you're here on a good day. We're starting a new sermon series, and the sermon series is entitled The Spiritual Rhythms of Jesus. And we're, we're trying to focus a little bit more deliberately this year on the idea of spiritual formation, of growing at, as a Christian of Christian discipleship and the types of activities, the types of rhythms that happen in the other six days of the week that cultivate that sort of spiritual maturity. And so this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 23 as a jumping off point, but looking at the Psalms each and every week as Jesus's prayer book in the way that he would have used the Psalms to cultivate his own relationship with the Father. This morning we'll be using Psalm 23 and bouncing around a little bit. And as we get started, let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would be with us uh, this morning and each Sunday after this as we think about the ways that you have encouraged us to be active in following you, that you, in fact, are the pursuer, that you, in fact, are the one who seeks us out, and we are simply responding. But Father, help us to learn how to respond well, how to respond not only in our minds, but in our bodies, in our activities, in our disciplines, in the way that we spend time with you, as in the way that we spend time with other people. And Father, would you take each of us in this church and help us to make a step forward in maturity, help us to make a step forward in conforming to your image in being more like you and in so doing to enjoy you more fully. Father, we pray that you would do that and begin that this morning. And we pray in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. Well, I read one of the most well-known passages of Scripture, maybe the most well-known, maybe besides the Lord's Prayer. And it's uh, anytime there's a funeral on TV or in a movie, you generally hear this passage read. And it's obvious why, because it's an incredibly comforting passage. It's tender. It gives us this familial picture of God as a gentle God, guiding His people through the difficulties of life. And in reading this, you come to believe, or it's hoped that you would come to believe, that there is no situation in life where you are truly alone. There's nothing that catches God off guard, off guard about your life. He is powerful beyond measure, as Jessica prayed, that he created the heavens and the earth, and yet he uses his power to tenderly care for his children. We also read Luke 2 that Jesus says as an adolescent that his place was in the Father's house, that is in the temple, 
in the Jewish temple. This was where Yahweh resided. This is where the holy, powerful God resided, behind partitions and approachable only when certain sacrifices are made and only by certain people who were set apart. You have this idea of God, this picture of Him that's a bit more austere, a bit more intimidating, really. God is walled off. He's to be feared because He is holy and utterly so. And it's not that God is never described as a father in the Old Testament, but it is more of a minor note. He was much more predominantly thought of as a holy judge rather than a father. But Jesus comes along and he changes the tune a little bit. It's not that God as a transcendent holy judge is discarded, but God as a father, as loving, protective, affectionate, Comes to, comes to be the more main melody. And the good news of this, the good news for you and I, is that in Luke 2, Jesus says, my Father's house. But in Luke 12, a few chapters later, God isn't only Jesus' Father, but He tells His followers, do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Tertullian was an ancient church father from Africa in the second century, and he said that the whole gospel is summed up in this phrase, our Father. That you and I as human beings can call the God of the universe Father should be astounding to all of us. Now, perhaps you're here this morning and your relationship with your actual earthly father is strained. He's been inadequate. He's been distant, maybe even abusive. And so this is a difficult concept for you and many of us to get our heads around. And maybe you'll learn more about God by contrast with your earthly father than by comparison. But keep in mind that the Bible talks about God not only as a father, but in some places as a mother bringing her baby chicks under her wings. The point that Jesus is making here is not about God's gender. The point that Jesus is making is about his invitation to be loved by the greatest parent, the greatest father of all. He wants his father to be your father. And that even if you didn't hear it, or you didn't hear it adequately enough from your earthly father, there's an eternal, a heavenly father who wants to tell you over and over that you are known, that you are cherished, and that you are cared for. Now, in this series, as I said, we're talking about spiritual formation, and I'm hoping that each sermon will not just give you a few new insights, but will help you with some actual strategies to pursue that will stretch beyond the time of just the sermon or even Sunday morning. And in this case, I want to help you briefly better understand how to cultivate a deeper relationship with your Heavenly Father. And if you're considering Christianity, I want to help you continue to investigate, to continue to consider how, what it would be like to have God as your Father in your everyday life. Now, how do you consider whether you want to spend more intensive time with someone? 
How do you consider whether you want to cultivate a deeper, more intimate relationship with someone where you spend time with them? And casual time is very important. It's necessary, and it contains some of the best insights. But every flourishing relationship needs intentional time. It needs one or both of the parties to seek to be intimate with the other. It needs both or one, one or both of the parties to make an intentional decision to pursue the other. And I want us to spend a few mo- moments talking about how we might do this in one context, and that is prayer. And that is prayer using Psalm 23. And by walking you through Psalm 23, I want to make a few comments about not every part of the verse, but the main parts. They might help you take this psalm or another psalm or any passage of Scripture and to use it in your prayer life, individually or perhaps uh, in your small group or even as a family. The first phrase, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. The Bible is full of corporate prayers, and each and every week we pray our Father, the Lord's Prayer. It's a corporate prayer, and we read scriptures that are addressed primarily to a corporate context, to a community. And it's incredibly important to learn this and to experience this. But when you as an individual are in the valley of the shadow of death and you're scared, you need to know that God is your Father in a personal, intimate, individual way. And we need need help believing that because we can't just read it and then believe it and live it out perfectly. We need God to work it down into the recesses of our soul. And so maybe over morning coffee, or maybe right as you're going to bed at night, you would take a few moments, and maybe you can practice it this week with Psalm 23. Take a few moments, read it through once, read it through again, and see what thoughts emerge. And maybe go back to that first phrase, the Lord is my shepherd. And maybe you would then pause and pray something like this, God, I want to know you as a shepherd but right now I feel like a scared sheep. I need to know to experience your presence, to experience you as a father, not just hear about it or read about it. I need to come to truly believe that you have my best. I've heard, God, that sheep lie down in the midst of their shepherd when they feel safe. Help me to lie down in this situation at work. I'm so thankful that you present yourself as my shepherd in this situation and not as my judge. Help me to live with freedom and delight knowing that my Father is going before me and that whatever happens, that your love, God, is unwavering. You see, you can make a a whole number of paragraphs of prayer just based off of that one little phrase. But then he says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet or still waters. I don't know what kind of grass you had in your yard when you were growing up, but in the south, most yards have St. Augustine. And it's a nasty, gnarly, awful weed. And it's not good to look at. It's certainly not good to lay on. It's uncomfortable. But it, it grows in hot climates like the south. Well, when we moved to the Bay Area about 10 years ago, we went to a local park down the street from our house, and it was... August and it was 72 degrees and the sun was out it was just beautiful and we laid down on this grass that wasn't St. Augustine grass where you had to have a towel to lay on it but we laid down in this grass it was just like cotton 
It was unbelievable. And we were playing with the boys and throwing the ball for them. And Abby, little Abby, was climbing all over her mom in this cottony green grass. And, and Katie looked up and said, this just feels like a little piece of heaven. And it did. Well, maybe we've encountered those places where God feels especially present. That it does feel like a little slice of heaven that life couldn't get any better. We're able to connect the dots between the promises that we read in Scripture and what's going on in our daily life. But life's not always like that, is it? Maybe this morning you feel like you're in a, a much darker place. The grass is browner. It's deader. And this phrase that He makes me lie down in green pastures, He leads me beside still waters, is a phrase of gratitude. It's a phrase of remembrance that enables us to frame our present day difficult circumstances a little bit differently. And so maybe we would find ourselves reading that passage or that phrase and then praying, Father, thank you for the green pastures that you've led me to in life. Thank you for my family, for my spouse, my children, my job. But as I look ahead, I see browner pastures. I can't quite see your presence in my future. Father, would you tend the pastures that I'm walking into? Prepare them for me that I might lie down again in that place that's very obviously of you. I can't control the future. And so would you comfort me? Would you still my heart by telling me over and over that you can? Then he says, he restores my soul. We have chickens like a number of you do, but they're not the smartest of animals. And our, our first five chickens wouldn't go into the coop at night like they told us they would at the chicken store. But they would roost on, on top of the coop. And every night we, and when I say we, I mean me, would have to put on some flip-flops and walk out in my jammies to take these stupid chickens off the roof one by one and put them in the coop. Now, here's where the analogy between me and God kind of breaks down because I didn't exactly delight in this task, and occasionally I would forget. And so once in a while, we'd have a chicken picked off by a raccoon or we'd have one wandered down the block, chicken lover out there, it sounds like. And one of these times, one of them wandered way down the block, like eight houses away, and it took putting signs up and listening and searching our neighbor's backyards for this chicken. But you see, finding a chicken is not even half the battle. It's maybe 10% of the battle because they're incredibly fast. And if they're not in an enclosed area, you just can't catch them, or I couldn't. And so I got chicken treats, and eight blocks away, I started walking backwards and leaving a trail like every 10 feet, and this little hen is following me home with all the neighbors looking out their windows at me. Well, why did I have to do that? Because we had learned that raccoons kind of like chickens, and when I say like them, it means they like to break their necks. And if I didn't go find this chicken, she would be in grave danger and our neighbors would not like us very much if we allowed her to die. So I lured her with food. And every step she took, she walked closer and closer to home. She walked, walked closer and closer to safe harbor. Now, 
God's Word is often talked about as food, that He longs for us to taste and see that He is good, that He wants us to digest, that He wants us to take small bites of His Scripture and digest them into our, into our soul, that He wants us to feed upon His love. And this happens, of course, primarily on Sunday morning as we read a variety of types of Scripture, and it happens in your small groups. But also, it can happen as you take time personally to digest God's Word, as if it's full of vital nutrients that you need to live on. And so maybe in this passage or this phrase, you would say and emphasize different parts of it separately or differently. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. And you see how just repeating the passage and emphasizing different words, you get a little bit of different piece of the food that's there for you to eat. And so maybe we would find ourselves praying, Father, my soul and my hunger for you atrophy so quickly. I find myself feeding on things that leave me hungry. I think that if I can just win this person's approval, that life will be complete. If I can just keep the peace in my family, then I'll be happy. If I can just secure this promotion, that I'll be fulfilled. But the truth is, I'm constantly, constantly hungry. And would you feed me instead with your word? Would you restore my soul with your truth? Bring me back to yourself. And then the psalmist, most, most likely David, says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And this is the place where life, where sight in life fails us. There's this vague foreboding that something's not right. There's this deep-seated anxiety that sort of bubbles up. And it's like swimming in the ocean after you watch Jaws. You hear the cello playing in your life, you know, dun-dun, 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 dun-dun. Well, it's okay in those moments to pray, God, what are you doing here? Get me out of this situation. I don't want to be here. I don't have the resources to deal with this situation. Those are absolutely invited prayers. But we do so realizing also that God may need us to be in those places, that he may need you to be in an uncomfortable place in order for you to learn something critical that you wouldn't learn and come to understand otherwise. And as I said last week, that, that true life change is always difficult. It's always scary. And there are times where spiritual formation, because it is life change, will be scary. It will feel uncomfortable. God will be asking you to take a step that you're not quite ready for yet. And it feels difficult, and it brings anxiety to bear. And it's not easy. But if you're asking God to grow you up spiritually, then these times are going to inevitably come into your life. And so maybe reflecting on that passage, we would pray, God, I believe in my head that you have my best interest at heart, but this situation causes me to think otherwise. Would you help me to see you in this conflict? Help me to see you in this difficulty. Help me to see you in this loss. Father, my friend has hurt me so deeply, and all I can think about is their disapproval. 
would you remind me over and over of your eternal approval and let that take root in my heart instead. Tell me how much you love me again. Help me to stand in the confidence of your delight in me rather than wallow in the antagonisms of this relationship. Now, as I read that, I realized that's kind of a mouthful, and most of us don't pray like that, right? But I wrote this beforehand, and it sounded better on paper than it probably would in any of our individual prayer lives. But you, you, your prayers don't have to sound like that. They can sound confused. They can sound incoherent. They can be a whisper. They can be, God, I don't know what to pray right now. Would you help me to know what to pray? God, I don't believe that prayer is all that effective. Would you help my unbelief? You know, if he's a parent who loves you, then baby talk is okay, that he's going to respond to that, and it's going to be endearing to him and hopefully to you as well. And then finally, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy, enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The prayer reaches a bit of a crescendo here, but it's not a happy crescendo. The rest of the psalm is so comforting and so full of delight and warmth, but this isn't a soothing part. This last place doesn't, this last part doesn't take place by still waters. It's not taking place in a Thomas Kincaid painting, but the psalmist is saying that he is confronted by enemies. He's confronted by those who want to kill him, and it's there that God prepares a feast for him. In the presence of his enemies, there's yet a feast. And this is incredible. What David is saying is, while the enemies are looking on, that he's feasting, that he is satisfied, that somehow in the midst of grave danger, that he's fulfilled. So maybe we pray, God, right now I feel pursued by those who seek my harm. I can't control people's opinions. I can't control what they're seeking to do towards me. But you have linked yourself to me, and you tell me that I'm also pursued by your goodness and love. And Lord, as I approach this situation, would you let those things overtake me rather than the harm that others intend? As I interact with those who seek to do me in, help me remember that you, my shepherd, are seeking to protect and guide me. And let your goodness and love hunt me down. Pursue me with your blessings. Now, David's experience, as it often did in the Old Testament, foreshadows another experience. It gives us images, it gives us pictures of the the type of life that the coming David, the coming Messiah, will experience, the true Davidic king. And so much of what happens in David's prayer life, so much of what happens in his actual life is foreshadowing the kind of life that that true David will experience, that the true Messiah will will come to undergo. And the Psalms were Jesus' prayer book. As he reflected back on the Psalms, doubtless he was thinking about his own role as being the fulfillment of David's life and David's experience. And as Jesus died on the cross, his enemies were looking on, confident that they were winning. 
But the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians, he says, Jesus, having disarmed the powers and the authorities, He has made a public spectacle of him, of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That as Jesus died in an apparent defeat, it was actually a cosmic victory. That it's, he's making a public spectacle of those who tried to do him in, both earthly and spiritual. And the cross is actually saying that he is victorious. And just as David suffered on behalf of his family, on behalf of his kingdom, Jesus suffered on behalf of his. Jesus suffered on behalf of his family, of his brothers and sisters. He suffered vicariously for you so that you could say, our Father. That you could say, my Father. And that it truly meant something. In the presence of Jesus' enemies, he prepared a feast for you. And Jesus was giving up His life, His body and blood as a feast, an eternal feast for all of His brothers and sisters to eat and drink forever. And for you and I to take up in the presence of our enemies, even the enemy of death itself. And because of that, we're not just sneaking away with a small victory, with a a slight win, but we can feast on His victory we can take even into our mouths and into our bodies the power of His victory over our sin and even over our death. And so friends, as you pray, it's more like a meal than a discipline. That you're getting to participate. You're getting to feed upon that victory that is yours. And you're asking that it take root more broadly and deeply in your life and in the life of the church and in the life of the world. And let's pray to that end. Father, as we come to the table, as we confess our faith, as we embark on a new week where we as your people are seeking to live out a life of faith, live out a life of prayer, I pray that you would meet us in those quiet places. I pray that you would meet us in your scripture. For those of us here that are still on a journey towards you or considering a journey towards you, I pray that you would meet us as well, that you would meet us in your, in your creation that you would meet us in our conversations that we have this week and that perhaps we might have the courage to take up the Bible and read and to consider what it has to say about our lives. Lord Jesus, would you let us participate once again this morning in your victory and let us walk out of these doors in that victory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.